At, uh, at Grace Church, we are committed to what is called expository preaching. And expository preaching is a type of preaching that takes seriously the centrality of God's Word. It holds the inspiration of God's Word. That is that all of these words were breathed out by God. It holds the inerrancy of God's Word. In that the Bible is true in all it says. There's no, there's no falsehoods. It's without error. And it holds to the efficacy of God's Word. Efficacy is words that, the word that means it's, it's effective in what it tends to do. God's Word always does what God wants it to do. And it holds to the sufficiency of Scripture. That in God's Word we receive all we need for life and godliness. So God's Word is, you don't have to write these down, but I'm just going to repeat them. Inspir- inspired, inerrant, effective, and sufficient, among many other things. Now, expository preaching, it begins with a passage of Scripture and seeks to make plain what the text is saying. In other words, what the text says is what the preacher should preach. And this method of preaching is called expository preaching. This is what we're committed to at Grace Church. Week after week, we don't seek to proclaim our ideas, human ideas, but we labor in order to proclaim God's ideas to you as revealed in God's Word. And we are only faithful in our task if we are able to faithfully proclaim God's burden in His Word to you. If we explain it and apply it to our lives. And as a church, we want to be centered on God's Word. Now in this book that I just mentioned, Word-Centered Church, Jonathan Lehman writes this. He says, The Bible knows what's relevant to every congregation far better than the greatest of pastors. The Bible knows what's relevant to every congregation far better than the greatest of pastors. It knows what a congregation needs more than the congregation knows. When a preacher preaches straight through a book of the Bible, God sets the agenda and the preacher learns along with the congregation. Now, I read this book when it first came out in 2011, and, uh, and that, that, those couple sentences really struck me. Um, the Bible, God knows what we need more than we think we know what we need. And Grace Church, this is something that I'm reminded of week after week as we gather under God's Word together. He knows exactly what we need when we need it. And I'm tremendously grateful that God understands us. He knows us. He meets us. He exegetes us better than anything we can come up with on our own. And this morning, God wants to draw our attention to Titus 3. We're going to finish up Titus this morning. When Larry and I plan out our sermon series, we have no idea what's going to be happening in the future. Surprise, surprise. But we want to be faithful to proclaim God's word to you and know and have faith in the fact that God exegetes us better than we can exegete ourselves. God knows what we need more then we know what we need. So this morning we are going to focus our attention on verses 8 through 15 of Titus chapter 3. So uh, would you pray with me and then we'll read God's word together. Uh, Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word. Your inherent, your infallible, your sufficient word for us. Would you, would you have your intended effect through your word this morning? Would you accomplish all that you want to accomplish through your word? And would you give us eyes to see you hearts that are soft to respond to you. Lord, would you bring conviction where conviction is appropriate? Would you bring encouragement where we are discouraged? And in all of this, would you be glorified? Give me grace this morning as I preach. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I mean, hear the word of the Lord from Titus 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God for his revelation to us. Now, I am someone who enjoys stories, and ironically enough, this is one of the things that I enjoy most about following sports. I enjoy stories, and that's what I like about sports. Each individual or team, they enter a sport, a season, with a goal, a championship, an accomplishment, some achievement in mind. And then they give themselves to a long and challenging journey to get to that point. Nobody wakes up and says, hey, I'm going to be a champion today, and I'm going to be a champion in curling today. And then they go out and win the gold medal in curling that day. No, even curling, they go through this long journey to reach that point. Now, in the NBA or in baseball, it doesn't matter how good the Golden State Warriors are on paper, they still have to play 82 games. It doesn't matter how great the prospects for the Washington Nationals look at the beginning of the year, they still have to play 162 games and they're still going to lose in the first round of the playoffs. I'm sorry. That was a low blow. Yeah, not like the Orioles. <laughs> they have to play all those games, and they have to play them well. And this commitment and focus, like they, they, every team goes in thinking, we want to win the championship this year. We want to do this or that. They want to do these things. And because they have that focus, it means they're going to focus on a lot of other little things on the way. And so in baseball right now, spring training is going on right now. And so every team, they're, they're going back to like the fundamentals. They're working on cutoff drills and fielding ground balls and, and bunt defense and all these, all these different things, all these little things, because they've got this bigger goal in mind. This past week, uh, LeBron James, he was asked if, he was, if, if their team was distracted this year. And James said this, he said, at this point, if you're still allowing distractions to affect how how the way you play, then this is the wrong franchise to be a part of. And you should just come and be like, listen, I don't think this is for me. I can't do this. And he goes on to say, just come and do your job. We do our job at a high level and that's not a distraction. That's what you want. That's what you want. Every game, you want to feel like you're fighting for something. So James is saying that in his business, his business is to fight for something. So that's, that's for them. It's championship. It's a success. And you do that by coming and doing your job every day. It's through that daily diligence 
It's avoiding distractions, avoiding things that are going to pull you away from that focus and doing these little things. There's all kinds of distractions throughout the season. There's injuries and there's trades and there's rumors and there's players' personal lives. But the foundational commitment of fighting for success leads players and teams to focus. And this focus leads to that daily discipline. We see here that a foundational commitment, a deep commitment, will lead us to being committed to other things. It doesn't mean that these things are more important than our primary commitment. But since we have this primary commitment, it's evidenced by secondary commitments. One of the primary themes of Titus has been that a commitment to the gospel, it leads to a transformed life. Because we're committed to the gospel, the truth of the gospel, it's going to affect the commitments we have throughout our days and our weeks. We are called to adorn the gospel of God through the way we live our lives, day in and day out. And this morning, even as Paul is closing his letter to Titus, he continues to teach. He continues to teach Titus in the church. And what he communicates is this. This is what we're going to see through these seven, eight verses. A commitment to the gospel is shown in a commitment to good works, to unity, and the mission. A commitment to the gospel is shown in a commitment to good works, unity, and the mission. So we're going to work through this passage looking at those three headings. Good works, unity, and mission. A changed life begins with an unwavering commitment to the gospel. And this gospel is the foundation for our passage today. That's why we read the whole chapter. Paul goes, begins in verse 8. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Paul writes that Titus must insist on a particular message. These things, it's referring back to verses 3 through, three through 7. And it's this glorious unpacking of the gospel of God that provides our foundation. We were once lost. We were blind. We were deceived. But God saved us. Not because of what we have done, but because of who He is. He is gracious and kind and has demonstrated through sending His Son Jesus to take on our sin, to die our death, that we might have life. And in Him we've been justified by grace. And we've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And Paul writes that this saying is trustworthy, meaning it's, it's sure. There's no doubt about it. It's tried and tested. This saying, the truth of the gospel, is a sure message. So Paul tells Titus to insist on it. The verb for insist, it's a word that emphasizes confidence and boldness. One commentator writes that we're not to be tentative or timid about the gospel, but instead we're to be decisive and forceful. So Grace Church, we're going to insist on this message. And I talked about this two weeks ago. I'll talk about it again. We're going to insist on this message week after week after week so that you would be confident in your faith, not fickle in it. Last week, Josello pointed us to our propensity to be distracted in hearing God's Word. So we can have itching ears. We can be consumed with our own thoughts, not God's. We can get caught up in the world's message about the good life, about what matters. But Paul is telling Titus, don't back down. Don't back down because of people asking. Don't back down if you're discouraged. Keep insisting on this sure and true word. It's like LeBron James saying, I mean, there's all, all this other stuff going on. Are these things distractions? No, we come in and we do our job. And that's what we do here at Grace Church. And our job is to proclaim the hope that's in Jesus Christ. Paul tells Titus in the church to stand strong. To stand your ground. Even when people complain. Stand strong even when the world comes up against the gospel going forth. John Calvin, he once said, Come what may, nothing must hinder us from declaring his unerring truth with utmost clarity. Although men may bend this way and that, God's ministers should never bow to their wishes or swerve from the truth. Amen. And this is our primary commitment, the gospel. 
It's that to which we unflinchingly and unswervingly aim all of the work of this church. We will proclaim this message and we will protect this message. It's going to come under fire. That happens. But that does not change our call. We are committed to this gospel message because it's our hope in life and in death. I love 16th century catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, the first question. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, this beautiful truth, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now this truth, this truth can't just be words for us. We can't just like talk about buying a new house and never move into it. Because if we never move into it, nothing happened. Nothing has changed. And we can be in danger of doing the same thing with the gospel. We can, we can talk about it. We can talk a lot about it. We can talk about how great it is, how glorious it is. But if it doesn't do anything to us, then we're preaching a false gospel. We can talk about the gospel and our commitment to the gospel, but fail to see what it does to our life. So our commitment to the gospel, it's not just a commitment to words. Talking about the gospel is not the end to which we aim. We stress the gospel because it leads us to be committed in other ways. That daily diligence, daily commitments that we commit ourselves to. The gospel calls us to something. It calls us to live a certain way. Jesus is not just Savior. Jesus is Lord. So with the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at three commitments that Paul highlights as a result of this commitment to the gospel, this foundational commitment to the gospel. And we're going to spend pretty much all our time on the first two and briefly the third. So commitment number one is this, do good. Verse 8 says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to do good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The gospel is a message that should make a difference in our lives. And this is what Paul has been stressing again and again throughout this letter. What we say we believe should make a difference in how we live. And Paul has been clear, and I must be clear, that this commitment to good works does not save us. It cannot save. But because of the grace that's come to us through Christ, we want to live lives for him in all that we do. It's God's grace. Paul talks about this in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. It's God's grace that trains us. It's as if this grace gives us admission into Christ's school. Here we are taught and we are trained how to live. In our former days, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray. But now, we are in Christ's school, learning to live as God's children. So, we devote ourselves to good works. That's what Paul's saying here. God doesn't call us to do good only when we've got the opportunity to be noticed, or only when there's a crisis. We should be committed to doing good all the time in every situation. Committed to doing good all the time in every situation. We should seek out opportunities to do good to those around us. Because of Jesus, we are God's children. And Paul uses this phrase in verse 7, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And it's this future hope that should motivate our present living. Because we know where we're going, we're to live a certain way. It's out of an awareness of what God has in store for us that we give ourselves to living for Him and doing good for others. 
This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. In 13, Matthew 13, 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When we know our treasure, which the gospel has won for us, when we have a heavenly mind in all we say and do, then we know the true worth of things, and we will gladly do good to others. An atheist, he once said this, he was a British guy, British politician, outspoken atheist. He says, good works are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it's impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. So even this man who denies the existence of God and denies the reality of heaven, he cannot deny that the gospel makes a difference in how we live our lives. It makes a difference in the good works that we should be committed to. So what are these good works that we should be committed to? Well, Paul has been laying this out throughout Titus again and again, but most recently we saw this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. We just read them a little bit ago. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. These good works, they're pretty all-encompassing. Be submissive, be obedient, be kind. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And this is primarily what Paul has in mind. Gospel people are good works people. But here, instead of unpacking more good works, Paul wants to draw contrast by telling us what not to do. Paul wants to tell us what to avoid. So in verse 9, Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And in the verse 8, he says, Do good works because these are excellent and profitable. Then here in verse 9, he's saying, Avoid these things because they are unprofitable and worthless. There's this contrast drawn. As we've made our way through Titus, we've talked about some of the problems that the church in Crete faced. There were problems outside of the church. There was, they, they existed in an immoral culture. And this culture threatened to shape the church. So there's problems outside, and there were problems inside the church by way of teachers who communicated lies. This is what Titus 1 lays out for us. And it appears that Paul is here addressing those who are inside the church. He's saying these are problems that are that are. The temptation is right there inside you. And they're making the church gatherings about something other than the gospel. They want to debate and argue instead of insisting on the gospel and doing good. And so what Paul is telling Titus and the church in Crete is that in doing good, don't entertain or tolerate this other nonsense. Avoid it altogether. Now, for those of you who have experienced controversy in the church, like this sounds great in writing, but when you go through a controversy or two, you will see how difficult this becomes. And in a church made up of fallen people, there's always something to quarrel over. There's always a reason for an argument, a debate, a controversy. But it's encouraging to note, I want you to be encouraged, that the church of the first century, it experienced conflict and and quarrels and controversy, arguments. The church has never experienced an age that was devoid of controversy, that lacked quarreling. And our call today is the same as it was to these first century Christians. We are called to avoid these things. But as you know, this is hard. And I think it's hard because controversy and quarrels, they can leave us feeling like we're missing out on something that might be important. That's one thing that happens. We want the information or we want to hear the chatter. People like drama. We persuade ourselves that 
this is a little better, better slant on it. We persuade ourselves that like, maybe we can help with something. Maybe we're part of the solution here. Maybe we can solve some problems. Maybe we can help others. But Paul just says simply, avoid it because it's unprofitable and worthless. Now, as I was studying this week, I was reminded of a book I recently read titled Digital Minimalism. Digital Minimalism by a guy named Cal Newport. He's a professor at Georgetown. And in his book, Newport argues that we should have a philosophy for how we want to use technology before we use it. In other words, we should know what our purpose is before we just go ahead and embrace technological advancement. So that's the argument of his book. Now, this is similar to something I heard once that I think of often. The guy says this. He says, instead of asking, what might this do for me? I should first ask, what might this do to me? Instead of asking, what might this do for me? I should ask, what might this do to me? And that's a far more important question than what it might do for me. So Newport argues for a philosophy that he calls digital minimalism. And this is a philosophy that in his words, you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. Focus on the things that you value, those things that support the things that you value, and then happily miss out on everything else. Now, as far as I know, Cal Newport is not a Christian, but I can see that there's a lot of common grace in these words. And in fact, I think there's a lot of what Paul is saying here in Titus 3, right here. As Christians, if Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure, if he is our boast, like we were singing about earlier, if in him we find life, then that's going to shape the things that we value, the shape the things that we give ourselves to. That will determine what's important to us. And then we should be happy to miss out on everything else. We should be happy to miss out on those things that don't support what we value. So in Paul's words right here, he says, do good to others and avoid foolish controversies. Doing good to others supports what you value, the gospel. Foolish controversies, they don't support that. So avoid them and be happy to avoid them. We often fall for that argument that, well, maybe this isn't a foolish controversy. Maybe this is a really big deal. Maybe there's something I need to see here. Maybe there's something I need to know. Like we think there may be some benefit to us. This idea is what Newport, he calls a maximalist philosophy. So instead of a minimalist philosophy, a maximalist philosophy. And that philosophy says that any potential benefit, any potential for benefit, that's enough reason for me to use this technology or do this thing. I may benefit, so I should use it. But if the gospel is indeed our focus, if we are heavenly minded, focused on all that's been won for us in Jesus, then this argument is crazy. Like, who cares about maybe some potential benefit that could be comparatively small to the hope of eternal life? Why would you waste your time on these things? All things are brought into perspective in light of the gospel, in light of the hope of eternal life. It's easy to avoid foolish controversies. Why waste our time there when we have so much more to talk about in the gospel? Now, many of you have no doubt seen how controversy and arguments and quarrels, they can consume your life, they consume the life, around, uh, the life of those around you, the lives of those around you, and they can consume churches. That's what controversy and arguments and quarrels, they do. Just yesterday, yesterday, I received an email from someone in another part of the country trying to fire up controversy. And immediately I began to wonder, how long did this take you to write? And I didn't read the whole, whole thing. I didn't read very much of it. But I read to the second sentence, and the second sentence said this. It's taken me three weeks to put together this account. Three weeks. 
Three weeks of this individual's time and energy devoted to controversy. This person could have been devoted to doing good, to showing courtesy to others, to pouring their time into expounding on the goodness and loving kindness of God, could have been encouraging the downcast with the hope of eternal life. But instead, they spent three weeks pursuing that which in Paul's words is unprofitable and worthless. Now, no doubt there's always something to talk about. There's always something to distract us, always something interesting. But Satan wants to destroy the church with some of his best weapons. And those are gossip and slander. Pastor Tim Chester, he helpfully says this. He says, when it comes to grumbling or gossip, we should be a cul-de-sac, not a channel. We should be a cul-de-sac, not a channel. When you hear grumbling or gossip, you should be the place it stops, not someone it travels through. Those are some wise words. Be the place it stops. Be a cul-de-sac, not a channel. One of the things that can be so challenging about controversy is our unbelief. Without recognizing it, this is where I know I can often go. Controversies, arguments, quarrels, they, in, in the church, they can be really disheartening, very discouraging. And so I can enter into these things because I want to solve the problems. I want to end the arguments. I want to bring peace and restoration. And this can seem like a right impulse and a good impulse, but I think subtly it reveals an unbelief that lies deep within us. The unbelief is this. We can functionally think that some problems are too big for God. We would never say that, but our actions say something else. We are far too quick to forget. I am far too quick to forget who the church belongs to and who reigns over all. There was a recent situation that came up close to me that I would put in this foolish controversy category, and I wanted to fix it. And when I could see that the problem was far too big for me to fix, I was tempted to despair. I was discouraged. And functionally, this problem just seemed too big for God. But then I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine, and he said this. He says, the church belongs to Jesus, and he is responsible for reforming it through the men he ordains to lead it. If they're corrupt or abdicate their responsibility, they must answer to Jesus. And he will remove them one way or the other, and he will judge them for their actions. Jesus remains head of his church. He remains king of his kingdom. We are his pastors and his subjects. He'll get it right. All we have to do is remain faithful. Are those wonderful words? Jesus remains head of his church. He remains king of his kingdom. We are his subjects. He'll get it right. All we have to do is remain faithful. So brothers and sisters, be devoted to that which is excellent and profitable, not that which is unprofitable and worthless. Do good works and avoid foolish controversy. No problem is too big for God to solve. No controversy is too great for him to end. He is taking care of our greatest need and he will take care of our controversies. So let us be committed to staying away from the arguments, staying away from the drama, the quarrels. Avoid it. Don't enter into it. These things are unprofitable and worthless, and instead be committed to doing good. Satan is dead set on destroying the church, and it brings him much joy to see a church turn in on itself in conflict and controversy. And so Paul's response is, quite simply, avoid it. It's vital for the church to be protected. And this leads us to the second commitment. It's about how to respond when controversy won't let up in the church. So commitment number two is a commitment to unity. Read in verse 10 and 11, Paul says this, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You may be doing a bit of a double take right now. Like after all this talk about doing good, 
avoiding quarreling, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. In verse 2, did Paul really just say, have nothing more to do with somebody? Like, this does not sound like love and grace. This does not sound like loving your enemies or turning the other cheek. It sounds harsh and mean. How do we make sense of this? Well, first, we need to be clear about the kind of person Paul is talking about here. Paul is not talking about someone you just disagree with. Paul's not talking about that person. Paul is not talking about someone who says something unhelpful. The person that Paul refers to is someone who will not walk according to the gospel. They will not embrace all that Paul has laid out already in this letter and what we see throughout Scripture. This person, there's a word for this person, and that person is a heretic. A heretic is one who departs from the truth. But not just departs from the truth, departs from the implications of that truth. So they could still be saying the right things, but living a different way. A heretic is someone whose life contradicts the gospel. And in this case, Paul highlights that it's someone who stirs up division. Paul has in mind the false teachers that he brought up in chapter 1, verse 10. He says this, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They must be silenced. He goes on to say later in chapter 1 and verse 16 that these teachers are those who profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. So a heretic is not just someone who has a problem with what they say. They may have a problem with how they live. And this can be complicated for us sometimes, but it's pretty straightforward in God's Word. This person that Paul has in mind here is one who has given themselves to causing trouble in the church. They are in opposition to God's Word and through what they say and do are separating people from the church. In chapter 1, verse 11, again, he says that they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, there's a connection that Paul is making between those who we separate from and those who are just after shameful gain. At every point in the history of the church, there are those who are driven by making a mark, by those that are driven by wanting to be seen as significant and important. They're motivated by self-interest. One pastor says, whenever men are intent on making their mark fire is bound to erupt. Whenever men are intent on making their mark, fire is bound to erupt. Self-interest always leads to endless strife. Being someone who's been in the seminary context and been around ministry pretty much my entire life, actually all of my life, not pretty much, um, you see this again and again, that this temptation is very close to people in pastoral ministry and people who desire to be in pastoral ministry. Uh, they can be driven by self-interest. And right there, fire is bound to erupt. Self-interest always leads to endless strife. This is why commitment to unity is so important in the life of the church. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says this in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's talking about unity here, the same mind, full accord. So he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Titus 3 verse 2, Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Unity matters a great deal to God. And because we insist on the gospel, we should insist on unity in the church as well. We see this priority throughout Scripture. Psalm 133.1 says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. In Ephesians, Paul spends his first two chapters, he puts the gospel on display. 
Chapter 3, he defends his ministry, and in chapter 4, he urges the Ephesian church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And this happens with a certain attitude, a certain disposition, a certain commitment, and that commitment is unity. Paul writes to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As the church, we should be eager to maintain unity because this is one of the things that Jesus has come to accomplish for his people. This is what the gospel does to us, unites us. In John seventeen twenty one, in what's known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus, Jesus prays to God the Father that those who believe in him, that they may all be one because God is one. God's people are called to be one just as God is one. We are called to reflect God through this commitment to unity. So because unity is important to God, unity must be important to us. And because unity is important to God, Satan actively looks to bring disunity. The devil loves a divided church. The devil loves a divided church. And so to protect the church, the New Testament lays out for us the concept of church discipline. And this is what Paul is talking about in Titus 3. And Jesus talks about church discipline in Matthew 18. One of the most notable passages on church discipline. Jesus says this in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus saying, if we wrong one another, go and confront one another. This should be a normal part of life in the church. This is what God's people do. We should be quick to confess our sin, and we should be quick to forgive one another. But if someone is not repentant, bring others with you. Go and confront them. Bringing others with you, it conveys, it, it not only validates what you're, what you're saying, because they agree with you, hopefully, otherwise you shouldn't be bringing them, but it also conveys the seriousness of the sin that this person is walking in, the seriousness of what is taking place. But still, some won't respond. So Jesus says if they're continuing to reject being confronted in their sin, still refusing to change and repent, then treat them as someone who is not a part of your community. You see that this, with far fewer details, is exactly what Paul is telling Titus. If one is stirring up division, warn them once, warn them again, and then have nothing more to do with them. Through their action, they have demonstrated that they are no longer a part of the people of God. They are self-condemned. Now, this may all sound harsh to you, maybe overbearing, maybe too strict. Like, isn't God a God of love? Doesn't he call his people to love their enemies, turn the other cheek? Doesn't he want them to be kind to others at all times? We just talked about show perfect courtesy to all people. Yes. Yes, God does. And the call in the church to exercise discipline in this way Matthew 18, Titus 3, and other places, 1 Corinthians 5. This kind of discipline is the most loving thing that we can do. Church discipline shows love, first for the one being confronted. You've probably heard a story about someone driving down the road at night, not knowing that a bridge up ahead is out. They're about to drive off a cliff to certain death. And, and this, driving off the cliff, this represents sin where we're headed in our sin. The most loving thing we can do for that person is not just let them go on their merry way. It's not to let them follow their dreams or, you know, just let them live a little. We don't say nothing because experience is the best teacher. Like, that's 
just let them experience it. No, no, we do all we can to stop them. Sin destroys. So we warn people that are in sin. We confront them. We call them to repentance. This is love. We call them to repentance so that they might be restored and protected. So church discipline loves the one being confronted. Church discipline also shows love for the church. I was, last night I got together with uh, several of the children in the church and some of their parents, and we read this passage and, and talked about it. And uh, I, I shared a story, like imagine you have a farm, and on your farm you have sheep. You've got a lot of sheep. And you're, you're the shepherd and you take care of those sheep. And one day, like another sheep comes and knocks on your gate, and you say, great, one more sheep, come on in. And you come to find out that that sheep is not a sheep. It's a wolf. And is it a loving thing to do to say, you know what, maybe if I just give this wolf some time, like maybe then he'll become a sheep. Or maybe then he won't be hungry to eat my sheep. Like, that's absurd. When a wolf comes into the church, they do not announce that they're there to destroy the church, to eat the sheep, to stir up division. And the process of church discipline is a means by which we can discern what is a sheep and what is a wolf. A sheep will respond and repent and be restored, while a wolf will only grow more and more agitated. If we love the people in the church and want to protect them, then we will exercise church discipline. John Calvin says it this way, If there is one sheep which strays, it must be brought back to the flock. Yes, but if there is a wolf, should it be brought into the flock in order to scatter it? Do they not mock God who say, as many do, and you've probably heard things like this, He's a poor lost sheep. He ought to be brought back. Calvin says this, In reality, as we know, he is a wolf, or rather a devil, whose one aim is to destroy everything. So if we love the church, we're going to be committed to church discipline. Church discipline, while it shows love for the sinner and for the church, it most importantly shows love for God. We gather together in the name of Jesus. We are God's ambassadors. The church is God's embassy on earth. And he has given us his name. We gather in the name of Jesus. All hail the power of Jesus' name. If we love Christ, then we will not want to tarnish his name by rejecting the holiness to which he has called us and ignoring sin in our midst. And 1 Corinthians talks a lot about that, 1 Corinthians 5. When Jesus comes, he doesn't come just as our Savior. He comes as our Lord. He has won people to himself and calls them to live in a certain way. Christ unites us to himself for the purpose of life and growth. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the church is called to live in a way that is different from the world. If we love him, we will live for him and seek to pursue purity and unity in the church. Now, Grace Church, there will likely come a time in the life of this church where church discipline needs to be exercised. This is a sobering reality. It's a hard reality, but one we would do well not to forget. Not only that, we should be grateful for the discipline that God instructs his church to carry out. Because the purpose of church discipline is not to make someone's life miserable. It's to see people restored, to see the gospel at work in the life of the church. The church must always be protected because Satan, he's always at work seeking to stir up division in the church. Satan does not take a vacation from his work. As a church, we must collectively be on guard against these threats. And we also need to understand that there's a big difference between needing to separate from others and loving to separate from others. Paul has this in mind in Titus 3. He's calling us to do good, to love others. But a part of this is protecting the church. It's being willing to separate from some because of their divisiveness. 
Pastor uh, Brian Chapel, he says it this way. He says, A person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it is not his character. He enters arguments regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He grieves to have to disagree with a brother. May we be the same. Grace Church, because of our commitment to the gospel, may we always be committed to the unity of the church as we protect it from those who stir up division. Now with his commitment to unity in mind, Paul moves to close his letter, and as he does so, he demonstrates a third commitment that we're going to just touch on briefly that stems from our gospel commitment, and that's a commitment to mission. At the forefront of Paul's mind as he closes this letter to Titus is the mission of, that the mission of God goes forward that the church continues to be built. So he gives this instruction on unity, on protecting the church. And now he's giving an instruction to Titus that, hey, I'm sending you back up. Paul really wants Titus to be with him. Titus spent about 20 years with Paul, ministering with Paul. And so now he's on Crete and Paul wants him back. But he does not want to leave. He doesn't want Titus to leave until the churches are well cared for. So that's what we see in verse 12. I'm going to send Artis or Tychicus to you, one or the other. But somebody's coming, and don't leave until they come, because the church needs to be cared for. The mission is that important. As much as I want you to be with me, Titus, the church needs to be cared for. So wait for them. They're coming, though. Then in verse 13, Paul mentions two more names, Zenos and Apollos. Now, based on the context, it's clear that both of these men are missionaries, those tasked with spreading the gospel and establishing churches. And Paul wants to ensure that the church in Crete is prepared to help them in every way. He says there in verse 14, see, or 13, see that they lack nothing. Do all you can to make sure that nothing will hinder them in their work. But I find it a remarkable demonstration of Paul's commitment to the gospel and to the implications of the gospel through his mentioning of Apollos. Now, Apollos, he's a name that comes up a couple other times in Scripture. Acts 18 tells us that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He was a powerful preacher and strengthened the early church through his teaching. Apollos is also someone who comes up in 1 Corinthians. Now, in some of the churches Paul had started, so Paul had started these churches. He knows these people. He loves these people. Apollos comes in later on and serves these churches. And in these churches, they're starting to be like, man, Apollos was so much better than Paul. Like, I'm with Apollos. He's the man. And Apollos is being held up and even against Paul. Now, it would be easy to see why Paul could see him in comp- himself in competition with Apollos. Or he could see Apollos as a threat to his own ministry. Like, I don't know that guy very well. I don't want him to undermine all that I've done. So maybe Paul could just leave Apollos out of it. Like, maybe he'd not even mention him. Maybe Paul even felt, could have felt some bitterness in his heart toward Apollos. But instead of looking for ways to undermine his ministry, Paul wants to see that he lacks nothing in his work in ministry. Paul has plenty of reasons to disagree with him, to start some foolish controversy. But because of his commitment to the gospel, Paul is committed to the mission of that gospel. He wants to see the gospel go forth. He wants to see the gospel spread, the name of Jesus lifted up. He wants to see people saved and lives changed. And if that's through his work, or through Apollos' work, or through somebody else's work, God's the one that gives growth, and may it happen. Paul knows that God... God is the one who builds his church. Not individuals, not institutions, it's God. And he says that he will build his church. This is Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So for us, Grace Church, let us turn to the grace that we have in Jesus. 
The grace that Paul ends his letter with. Grace be with you all. And let us have confidence as we commit ourselves to the gospel. In the midst of controversy, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of temptations to be disheartened, do good to others. Pursue unity in the church. And aim to see the gospel thread throughout the world. Pray for that. Pray for those that you disagree with. That the gospel would go forth through their ministry. Because that's, that's our commitment to the mission. Pray for those that you are close to. That the Lord would protect them and would give them much fruit through their gospel ministry. May we be committed to doing good. Committed to unity. Committed to proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. Amen? Amen. I want you to pray with me. Oh, Father, thank you for the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish and led astray and deceived, hated by others and hating one another. But you, in your goodness and loving kindness, have saved us. Lord, we are humbled as we reflect on our sin and we ask that your, your word would make claims on our heart. That we would respond where response is appropriate, that we would humble ourselves, repent of our sin, and turn to trust in you. Thank you for your call to us to do good to one another, to be committed to proclaiming the gospel, to protecting the church, to be committed to reflecting in the church the unity that is in you. And Lord, may we commit ourselves, continue to be committed to seeing the gospel made known, the glory of Jesus Christ made known throughout the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.